0: Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for the invitation, Rhys. And it's lovely to be back here. I was just, we were just reminiscing, thinking the last time I preached here was probably about 12 years ago. And then only other time prior to that was when I was a student in the old chapel, which I found a terrifying experience. <laughs> As you know, I'm a vicar in an Anglican church, and we have four congregations. We have multiple midweek Bible study groups, numerous children's groups, and lots of teenagers and young adults. And all of those sorts of uh, contexts, the Sunday context and the midweek context, require sound biblical teaching from myself and the rest of our staff team and our volunteer preachers, some of whom are sitting here today. And the impact of our preaching and teaching spreads further afield because uh, we, d- we have members of our church who are involved in lots of Christian ministry in other contexts. For example, we have lots of young leaders who uh, go on summer beach missions. We have university students who are leaders in their Christian unions at universities, uh, teenagers who are leaders in their Christian groups at schools. Uh, we have what I call Christian professionals working in mission agencies and uh, theological colleges like this one and clergy who are still active in the Diocese of Melbourne, Anglican clergy that is, even some non-Anglican clergy who are in other denominations and lots of Christians working in aid agencies. So our teaching ministry actually has a ripple effect. It spreads out through these many people who are working in these different um, Christian ministries. For example, recently I met a young man who'd grown up at St. Alfred's. So the church is called St. Alfred's in Blackburn North. Uh, I met a young man who'd grown up at St. Alfred's through his teens years. He left when his parents left and moved to another suburb. And he's now become the volunteer youth minister in his local uh, Baptist church with no training whatsoever. So he's doing it as a, a tent making situation. He works three days a week as a physio, I think. And in three days a week, he volunteers as a youth minister. And he said to me when he took on the role, he said, I had no idea what I was supposed to do. And the thing I fell back on was all the Bible teaching I got when I was a teenager at St. Alfred's. So I see the teaching ministry of our church as critical to not only our ministry as a local church, but to these wider uh, Christian ministries that our people are involved in. And teaching is the issue in this short letter to Titus. Um, You probably know, those of you who've done um, Titus in your New Testament studies, that we think Paul and Titus conducted a mission in Crete, on the island of Crete, sometime after the end of the book of Acts. Paul has presumably left to go on to continue his missionary work and Titus stays on Crete to help lead the new church. And Paul then hears that there are troubles back in Crete and he writes this letter to Titus to tell him how to to go, what to do, how to establish these young churches. And the key thing that Titus is meant to do is to appoint leaders to teach and pastor the churches. And the first half of chapter one, which we haven't read, tells us the sort of character these leaders need to have. And the second half of chapter one, which we just read is about false teaching and about how to um, appoint leaders who must oppose that false teaching. So the issue is that the church is being stirred up and, dis- and harmed and disturbed by false teaching. And Paul wants Titus to straighten this mess out. And the way he wants him to do this is to appoint good leaders, godly leaders, who will not only teach what is true, but oppose what is false. Now those of you who know your church history know that sadly this is a very common occurrence in the church throughout history. Every generation of Christians faces um, these sorts of problems of false teaching and how to oppose it. And uh, these battles take place in a whole variety of places. They take place in pulpits, what is preached in local churches, in places like Ridley, theological colleges, uh, in Christian publishing houses, in denominational synods and councils, and nowadays on the internet. Now, I imagine many of you are here at Ridley uh, trying to work out just exactly what the Bible does say, what is true, what, what is being taught here, and also, I hope, how to be equipped to be a teacher of some sort. And I want to encourage you that you are doing an absolutely critical thing. You're taking time out to reflect on scripture and to be equipped for a ministry that hopefully will last the rest of your life. And you may end up being involved in disputes and you need to learn how to think clearly and how to present the Christian truth as winsomely as you can. Now in Crete, it seems that There are Christian leaders who are teaching a false teaching. And it seems to be some sort of approach that says you have to be Jewish in order to be a Christian. (coughs) So in verse 10, Paul calls them the circumcision group, which is a shorthand way, I think, of saying that their belief was that Gentile Christians uh, need to be circumcised before they can be properly Christian. He also alludes in verse 14 to Jewish myths and that's a disparaging uh, term and in verse 15 slightly more uh, elusive uh, but he's referring there to purity issues which may indicate that these are Jewish purity uh, customs that are being promoted amongst the new church. Now how does Paul want uh, these false teachers treated or how does he think about these false teachers first of all? Well look at verse 10. Um, I'm using probably a different translation to you but I think these will be similar words. Verse 10 says, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. So they're rebellious, first of all. And I think what he means there is they're rebelling against the gospel and against God's word, which they've been taught by Paul and Titus. If you look back in verse nine, they're doing exactly the opposite of what a leader is supposed to do, which is to hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. You see, Christianity is something we're taught. We we learn it. We don't sort of come up with it in our own minds. Fundamentally, it is revealed to us and taught to us by others. We can't just make it up or adjust it to our liking. Now, if you're a student like me, when I was at Ridley, there were parts of the Bible I didn't know, and when I read them, I didn't like. But I can't just sort of edit them out and say, I'm not going to believe that bit. We actually have that revealed to us, it's, it's given to us, it's taught to us, and as trustworthy messengers, then we have to hold on firmly to that, not be rebellious. So what does Paul suggest, or not suggest, what does Paul command should happen to these false teachers? Verse 11, he says, they must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. The reference there to households probably is an imp- a reference to the household churches, those beginning churches in small groups in houses and you can imagine a group of Christians who've meeting maybe a you know some size like this in a house and they they've heard different things and they're now disrupted and they're coming to the leaders and saying shouldn't we be getting circumcised shouldn't we be taking our jewish heritage more seriously and on top of this it seems like these teachers are out to make money from their teaching now paul says this is no time for negotiation the false teachers must be silenced their voices must be muted their influence is so harmful and so disruptive that's the only thing to do now from my experience um, silencing is an easier job when you know the person and have some sort of pastoral authority over them so in a local church uh, where i'm a leader i have the power and the authority to ensure that some people don't get into the pulpit or don't be aren't given authority to express their views they might want to express those privately but they're not given the sanction of of the public pulpit of the church it's much more difficult to do this silencing job in the wider church when there are voices coming from all over the world it's a much more complex thing but that's why some of us sit on boards and councils in our wider denominations, or get involved in the national or international Christian world. Because we're trying to engage in that um, <laughs> that difficult discussion of, of maintaining what is true. And it's difficult to do that all the time. Now Titus has a particularly difficult job uh, because not only are the false teachers a problem, but it seems like the Cretans ethnically as a group are problematic as well Uh, and you get this from this little quote that we think comes from one of their uh, early poets epimenides where it says verse 12 one of crete's own prophets had said cretans are always liars evil brutes and lazy gluttons this true this is a true saying imagine if you're being prepared for cross-cultural ministry in crete So Paul says, you need to give them strong medicine, rebuke them sharply, verse 13, so that they will be sound in the faith and pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. So Paul is trying to put a bit of steel in Titus and saying, you need to sharply rebuke these Cretan believers, why? So that they will become sound in faith. They need strong medicine They are a bit lazy and, you know, a bit gluttonous and and evil. So you need to really go in there with all guns blazing. But not just to harm them, not just to tell them off. Notice that the aim is restorative. He wants them brought back to faith. Now, please be careful in rebuking anyone. And please be hesitant to sharply rebuke. My experience is that rebukes require enormous diplomacy and a good dose of grace. Otherwise, people simply take umbrage and leave the church. Even with the best of Pauline intentions and being able to stand on the word of God, uh, you want to be careful with this one, I think. Let me give you an example. Uh, Recently, uh, as you know, uh, Ridley hosted Dr Wes Hill here for a, a series of talks on same-sex attraction. And to coincide with that, uh, I preached on homosexuality at, at St. Alfred's and Mike Bird joined me in that task. Now that is only the third time that I've preached on this topic in 16 years as the senior minister, so it's hardly a regular feature of my pulpit ministry. But each time that I have spoken on this topic, I have had people disagree with the conservative approach I take. So after preaching this most recent time, I received an email from a couple who disagreed with me, uh, long-term members of our church, and the email included the following line. We don't agree with St. Alfred's attitude towards homosexuality. Read that as my attitude. Um, As we believe in an individual's right to love and companionship is a basic human right and one that we think aligns with our Christian beliefs. Now I'm the senior minister, this comes into my inbox. What do I do? What do I say to these good folk? They're speaking honestly and genuinely and deserve to be heard. I personally think they are wrong, but how do I go about interacting with them? Do I go and rebuke them in the way Paul describes? You see, one of the things you have to learn in ministry is that when you come to Ridley's, uh, and I know I remember this from my time here, there's a certain certain approach that thinks, well, all I need to do in ministry is go out and preach and teach the word and everything else will work. That's rather naive. You see, a, a preaching and teaching ministry also includes listening to people and engaging with them at a personal level. And it's more difficult when you don't have a pulpit to hide behind to have the strength of your convictions when you're involved in this sort of discussion. So I went to see this couple, I went and sat in their lounge room and we discussed their views. Now, I didn't change their minds and they didn't change my mind, um, but I think we'll continue to maintain good relationships. Should I have been firmer? Should I have been sharper? I'll leave you to judge and you can tell me afterwards. Now, perhaps the closest I've come to rebuking someone came some years ago with someone who wasn't a member of St. but was visiting us one Sunday morning. And I do what I believe you do, what Brian has told me we're supposed to do after the end of this service. I stand at the door and I talk to people and greet them and shake hands. Um, And this gentleman came up to me and he was rather sort of edgy. You could see that in his body language. And his first question to me, and I'd never met him before. His first question to me was, did I think Genesis 1 and 2 were literally true? This is a Sunday morning. We weren't preaching on Genesis one and two. <laughs> and I could see, um, you know, I thought, well, what's going on here? And he pumped me with another couple of questions. They were like sort of blows to the chin. And before he could get his, his next one in, I asked him a question. I said, have you come to church this morning just to have a fight? And I thought, I'm not gonna put up with this. And um, he just got in a huff and left. Now that was not my most gracious moment as a minister, perhaps. <laughs> And whether that's a rebuke or not, I don't know. Um, but it just shows you how difficult this sort of thing can be. So I'm reminding myself this morning that Paul's aim in rebuking is to restore people back to faith, not to win fights. And I'm still learning how to do that. And God bless you as you try and do it as well. Paul finishes this section in verses 15 and 16. He says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Now, there's a sharp rebuke if ever there was one. Now, these people who are doing this false teaching are putting the emphasis on the wrong things. They're they're talking perhaps of outward purity, outward shows of religiosity, maybe like the Pharisees, Jesus day but the crucial thing that Paul notes in verse 15 is they don't believe they've they've heard maybe the gospel that Paul and uh, Titus have preached but they don't actually believe it and they're trying to add things on so for Paul there is this chasm between what these teachers believe and what he and Titus believe and it's absolutely vital then for Titus to appoint leaders who will teach sound doctrine and maintain the spiritual health of the churches. Now this is made even clearer if you look in chapter two, where the word teach is used five times as a command to Titus beginning with verse one, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Well, what do we do with all of this? I want to suggest one main area of application, which I think is pretty straightforward. That is that false teachers must be refuted by true teachers. Paul sees a church that is, troubled and disturbed and he instructs titus to appoint true teachers who can build up the 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 believers and rebuke the false teachers and titus himself must be a leader in this now i believe last night here at ridley chris wright spoke in honor of john stott did that happen yep Uh, one of the most significant christian teachers of my lifetime and john stott says that the more false teachers there are the more true teachers are needed so that includes people like all of all of you in this room and i think what this means then at a local church level which is my area of ministry is that what is taught from the pulpit is one thing that sets the direction of the church creates a culture uh, creates an expectation about god's word etc but it's not enough to leave it just in the pulpit At the local church level, you have to multiply the teachers who will teach in the children's ministry areas, the youth, the young adults, the midweek Bible study groups, and then who will lead the mission teams who go out into various mission contexts. At a broader denominational level, seminaries and theological colleges are absolutely vital. Again, John Stott says this, In every country, the church is a reflection of its seminaries. Theological colleges or seminaries are where future leaders are either made or marred. So I'm very grateful for my education and my formation here at Ridley. And it's vital for the long-term health of the church that principles of colleges and Christian academics are first and foremost disciples of Christ, that they're holding true to the, the message that's been passed on to them. And then that they use their intellectual abilities and their publishing ministries to teach the truth and counteract error which all the staff here at Ridley do um, but we need sound teachers not only in the local church and at theological colleges we also need sound teachers who will play a part in the wider church and in our denominations so a couple of years ago I was a delegate to the Anglican General Synod in Adelaide so that's a gathering of people from all over Australia and during our time at Synod we met in small groups to discuss the future of the Anglican Church in Australia Now, there's something that needs lots of prayer. (laughs) And it became clear over the week, and I was meeting with people from eight different dioceses, that we didn't agree on some big truths. For example, we did not agree on the meaning of mission. We all agreed that if the Anglican Church is to have a future in Australia, it needs to be more mission-minded. But we didn't agree on what the word mission meant. We didn't agree on the word atonement or the authority of Scripture. We're all reading the same Bible, but we didn't come to the same conclusions, largely because of what we'd been taught. So it's a real test of wisdom in a setting like that to put Paul's instructions to Titus into practice, but we must keep going. So may God bless you in your learning, but more importantly, in your teaching, so that you may be able to pass on the word that has been given to you and you be equipped to teach the saints the truth and rebuke the error with winsomeness and wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.